Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Before midnight is over. It must have been one hell of a night we're about to have. Oh, we said we were going to stop. They wanted to see the ruins. Yeah, but should we wake them up? You know what let's do? On our way back to the airport, we can catch them. Hmm? You know we won't. Yeah, probably not. Okay. And how did you two meet? We met about 18 years ago. We kind of, sort of, fell in love. And a decade later, we ran into each other. No, no, no. You wrote a book, and I read about it and went to look for it. Oh, it's pretty romantic. If we were meeting for the first time today on a train, would you start talking to me? Would you ask me to get off the train with you? Of course. This place is so full of thousands of years of myth and tragedy, and I thought something tragic was going to happen. It's still there. It's still there. Gone. You never stop ogling girls. Like... I don't ogle girls. I make love to them with my eyes. Oh, wow. I'm stuck with an American teenager. I feel close to you. Yeah. But sometimes, I don't know, I feel like you're breathing helium and I'm breathing oxygen. What makes you say that? I wanted you to say something romantic and you okay. okay? You are the mayor of Crazy Town. Do you know that? You are. This is how people start breaking up. Oh, my God. I assure you, that guy you vaguely remember, the sweet romantic one that you met on the train, that is me. Why am I finding myself yes. so attracted to this woman? <laughs> All right, Andy, number three. Number three of the Before Trilogy. Here we are. Nine years later. Nine years no separation this time. Jesse and Celine are back together. And now they're in Greece. Greece is a lovely place. Now they're in Greece. The end of a six-week vacation. A writing workshop. Uh, you know, they've been living in Paris. Yeah, at a, at a writing workshop. They're, uh, they've been married pretty much since the end of the last film. But they're not which married. Which destroyed his previous marriage. They're not married. They've been together. They've been together. Uh, destroyed his previous marriage. His uh, ex-wife hates him, hates her, uh, and makes it difficult with their son, who we meet right at the beginning as Jesse is saying goodbye to him at the airport. And that kind of sets the ball rolling for uh, you know our couple and family and relationships and uh where we are yes yes it does yes it does so i mean what do you want to do you want to just get into it you just want to dive in oh let's just dive in so yeah so when this movie came out it was rated r for sexual content nudity and language just like the others <laughs> second verse same as the first same as the first All right, Andy, here we go. I was so looking forward to this movie. I really was looking forward to it because I feel like I was set up perfectly, perfectly from the second movie, which, if you remember, was a four-star film for me. I I really enjoyed that they have some had something to build on from the first movie, which was Gen X woe, and I couldn't really stand that all that much. And so this, they're adults. I thought, moving nine years further into the future, this is going to be great, especially because the second movie ended on kind of a, a sexy cliffhanger, like, you know, what's going to happen next? They had a lot to build on. And, uh, and so now we get to Before Midnight, and nine years later... 
I loved the introduction. Like I thought the opening of the um, of, of the movie with his son, that conversation with his son getting on the plane, like it it demonstrated that sort of re- father son relationship angst that uh, of of teens that is hard to watch, hard to experience. Like it was just really really a delightful way to do it. And what a nice surprise when he comes out and she's there. Like it answers the question to the cliffhanger. She's in the car. They have two more kids and they're twins. And that was super satisfying. Um, so, so far, so good is where I'm, is what I'm saying. The beginning of the movie so far, so good. Well, you're definitely setting things up. So I think everyone knows where you're going with this. Well, yeah. Why don't you just finish? <laughs> I loved, I also loved the lunch. I thought the lunch was fantastic. We'll dig into why I love the lunch. And then they go on an extraordinary walk and talk, which then begins to seem like they haven't actually talked to each other for nine straight years. And the movie sort of shows its hand and leads us to the hotel room where my wife and I are sitting there watching this thing. And we're both looking at each other like we need to turn off the, the TV. It's so stupid. The conversation that they're having is so insipid uh, that it it uh it becomes not respective of human relationships anymore it is written as if she's psychotic and he's talking to her as if she's redemptive and it no longer deals with uh age and uh reality it just deals with her coming off the rails and that's not the movie i i feel like was set up in the beginning and so the the entire second half of the movie i could not get out of it fast enough i like regretted Every minute, it was just like, oh, so silly, so silly. And I think they really did a disservice to Julie Delpy, and they gave Ethan Hawke a really high bar to clear. There you go. Wow. Stupid. So, I, it's a battle between one and two stars for me, seriously. I, I, I'm honestly not surprised that you came out of this feeling that way. I, I, <laughs> I, I felt like as I watched this... That I was just like, Pete doesn't know how to handle a movie like this. <laughs> I I don't know why that is a reputation that I have. I don't feel like it's fair. And I'm I'm curious where that because it's such a slight. No, well, I know, and I don't mean it that way. But I mean it I think from the beginning of the podcast, there, you know, I, I think some some listeners early on kind of, you know, gave me the artsy Andy and you the popcorn Pete moniker. And I feel like there's an element to it where I, I, I don't know. I just I guess sometimes I feel like with some films like this, I, I I don't know. I I'm able to kind of watch the watch the relationship and as they kind of unfold and everything. And I don't know. I found it to be um, in, an incredibly powerful story watching the relationship because I mean you know relationships you know have struggles and there are ups and downs in any relationship and I've been in arguments like this with my wife where we're having a wonderful time and then then people you know one of us says something usually me because I'm the idiot. And uh, I say something. Is she sitting right there right now? <laughs> no, she's not here right now. Uh, but I, I usually do say something, and and suddenly it like the whole conversation shifts in a way that neither of us were expecting. And then it's like hours of argument and trying to figure out how did we get into this and how do we how do we keep unfolding it in ways that keep making it worse when we're both trying to make it better, but it just keeps you know, uh, snowballing into darker and darker places in this conversation. And like, why are we suddenly in this incredibly ridiculously, you know, uh, edge of the cliff point in this conversation when neither of us had any intention of getting here. 
and then how do we get back to where we were? And and so for me, like watching it unfold, and I, I completely disagree with you. I think it was there from the start of the film you know, when, when he's in the car talking about his son and the idea of moving. And so she, that set her up where she's instantly thinking about that. And that's why it built to all of this. So I think it was absolutely set up for this whole thing to hit at this particular point. And I don't think she's necessarily acting crazy. I think she's obviously very sensitive with... Uh, you know, her career and his motivations and trying to figure out how to navigate through all of that. So, I, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe I, I take offense at the way you you come at it because it sounds such an attack to the filmmakers in the story and you sound so spiteful with all of that. And no, so I think, I, no, it's you know, bad... I think it's fair to, to, to come at you with a little well, bit Well, of... then come at me for the movie, not because of this whole, like, Popcorn Pete. Because I didn't like 2001 and that's where the reputation started. It's fine. 2001's a snooze. I can handle that. The problem I have here is the way she's set up in that scene you mentioned in the beginning, where she says, this is where our marriage ends, is sort of ridiculous because he's right. He never, if you look at the script, he never says, I want to move to Chicago. She says that. She's the first person who reads ahead in the conversation so much. And I think you could make the case that as a couple, she actually plants the seeds for him to want to move, to move there by talking about it incessantly. Now, I want to go back to you having weird arguments with your wife. They might happen. I've had them with my wife. I don't want to watch a movie about them. When the conversation see, doesn't make sense, thing. it's silly. It's And that's what we get here. A silly couple like conversation that isn't believable. They're talking past each other the entire time. There is no redemption in their conversation because they never get eye to eye with each other. And that's the whole thing. Then the end, they come to this climax and we have two minutes or less sitting at the table on the water. And that is not enough to make this a satisfying redemption to the last part of the movie in that hotel room. That's the problem I have with it. It's not that I can't handle watching slow movies or or conversational movies. It's that this one is dumb to me. <laughs> well, that's reductive. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I find it to be... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I really connected with the characters and I found their journey strong. And I don't think I needed more than that moment at the end where we have, you know, he comes out, he's trying to figure out how, how do I repair this? And so he comes up with this silly little thing that he's doing at the end. And yeah, I mean, the, the resolution that we have at the end is pretty short, but it's like, it's, I, I didn't feel like we needed any more. Like we have him sitting down with her doing this little silly thing about time travel and all this stuff. And it's her turn at the very end where she kind of starts going along with his game and saying, well, what is this about the time travel and stuff? And like, that's all I needed to know that these two are able to navigate the ups and downs of their relationship. And they're able to work through all of this. And they're able to say, you know what? I do want to make this work. Okay, let's go through this. And and that connection at the end told me that, you know, they're probably not going to move to Chicago and that they're and she is probably going to take that job and they are going to um, not end up getting divorced. And it's not the end of their relationship. But, you know, I don't know. I, I Yes, I mean, she brings up the Chicago thing, but I do think that there is this passive aggressive way that he starts that conversation and is saying those things in a way that it felt like, you know, he's like he he misses his son. He's trying to figure out a way where he can be more present in his life. And so it made sense for her to to kind of read that. So I don't know. I guess I felt like 
the the journey that they have as characters in this particular film i don't know it felt like that the the you know this is what a couple's been like after they've been married for 10 years and oftentimes the conversations are about work and about you know silly things and stuff but these sorts of things can come up so i don't know i guess for me i found it to be very effective in the way that they crafted the characters and put them at this particular point in their lives. It, it was the end that I struggled with, the last major section of the film. But I, I want to highlight, to your credit and to your read of the movie, just how good and how much I loved the scenes where they were in with the other group together at the villa. Uh, that lunch scene was artfully, perfectly constructed for me. I mean, could not have been written better. The way their conversation, both together as uh, as a major group, and when you look at Jesse and Celine in isolation, moving between funny, funny joke, funny, funny joke, to all of a sudden, hard stop, we've hit something that we are um, not, it, w- that we picked a scab that that is uh, still hurtful to us, and we're not, we're not at center on this. I thought that was delightful. And so I I felt like the movie really knew where it was going and what it was to my view of it in that sequence. And part of the reason I liked it so much was that there were more people to play off of, right? I think we learn a lot as mature couples and in narrative, you know, screenwriting when we have more to talk off of. And and so Part of of what I think I really regret about the last part of the movie is that we lose that, that it becomes such a, a, you know, Jesse and Celine in isolation um, that I think we stop learning. I I think we stop learning about these characters. They, you know, that they keep moving side sideways from each other. And, um, you know, Jesse's big, you know, speech, which is, you know, both powerful and deeply insulting when he says, okay, what would I change about you? You're crazy. Nobody else could ever put up with you like I have, and I love you unconditionally. Why don't you hear me? Was like, I I feel like that was the simplest way out they could possibly take. And we're missing, you know, part of having that conversation in the context of being in a space where they could bounce around things off of other people. I think I, I think that's a that's one of the things I struggled with with the movie is that it teased me that it was going to deal with a more mature, um, you know, structure by having more people involved and then didn't ultimately, you know, left a lot of the movie just to the same stuff. And as a result, and this is my last point on that, as a result, it felt like their conversation was happening between two people who haven't seen each other in nine years and they were just amping each other up. and like not like resonant as a couple that's been together for the last nine years. Just, I never, I didn't really believe it. And I I guess I just don't understand that. And I, you know, so I'm really struggling with that interpretation because like they're, everything they're saying and doing, it feels like people who have been together for all this time and they have shorthand in their conversation quite often. And it, it, it just everything kind of has a very natural flow. And it also feels like there are things that are unspoken that they 
you know, they dance around, they don't quite say. And, you know, with everything kind of coming out through this conversation, some of these things that they haven't said are coming out. And so, you know, points of view that haven't been explored are kind of hitting. And I think that's what makes all of this happen. So the way I'm reading it is like, yeah, they're, they're a couple and, but there are things that they're not necessarily always saying to each other. And so it, it's suddenly they're both being challenged with a lot of different points that are being brought up because of all of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I and yet I, I still feel like I, I mean, I, I get that as an intention and I never hear it like I never hear this idea that there that there are things that they are that they are able to talk about, like at the lunch and they're able to play. And then they are they they really struggle to to talk about these issues. And clearly there are things that are important to her as a character that have really bubbled up to the surface as a result of Henry. Well, and not just Henry, but also her job. And I think that was another of those points that came up in the car, because to her, it is an opportunity that she's very much looking forward to. And he instantly dismisses it, not so much about the job, but because it's about this particular person that she would be working for. And so he instantly is dismissing it. Oh, you hate him. You could never work for him. I think it's a terrible idea and all this sort of stuff. And as she says later, it's like, that is my dream job. And and from, from her perspective, it's like, if I have to work with this guy that I don't like, I'll do it because it's this job that I've been looking forward to and I'm really interested in. And it's, I, so I guess that's where I, I feel like there there are these things that you know they're both kind of uh, you know navigating and i don't know i i i buy that as a relationship there are things that they're not always you know you know having open conversations about yeah i i just i so based on again the script i guess i'm still on team jesse and that's why i so hear this as like hear their conversations as she is like making up things to fight about as they go uh, that when she first brings up the job it's exactly what he hears right she she says i think you know i think i'm probably just going to take that job it's not a dream job it's never presented as a dream job in the car right he just says oh you don't like that guy you probably shouldn't take that job she says yeah i know but it's uh you know it'd be a good job like she's hemming and hawing about whether or not she's going to take that job not I'm going to take this job because it's my dream job. And this now runs in conflict with what you're going to do. It's set up as such a uh, such a preamble, an emotional preamble to something that we discover later that I find that setup is it, it's just unfair. Right. Both to to me as an audience member, as we're my wife and I are sitting there watching it like she changed. It feels like she changes her perspective on the job the more she starts to feel like he is going to move to Chicago. Like she tells plants that that story that all leads to uh, the, her being able to storm out of the hotel. Like I recognize this storm out of the hotel and come back in and, and say, hey, I'm going to I think I've fallen out of love with you. Right. But that doesn't make it for for us a satisfying like story, like realization, like it it came to this this thing that uh, felt like it came out of nowhere to me. And it made me I, I don't know, I just felt it. It felt unearned. I can, I mean, there, there are elements in that I can, I can certainly see and, and I can, I can, you know, glean that, yeah, there, there is an element to the way that she describes it early and then the way she describes it later. 
but also I think that there's an element to, you know, the subtext of how people talk to each other. And I think there are elements to, you know, sometimes when somebody is saying something, uh, that, you know, yeah, that's, I, I may, I may want to take this job. Like her subtext might be, I really want to take this job, but I'm not going to pitch it to you as something that I, I really want to take because, um, you know, I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just jumping ship and shifting our lives in an entirely different direction. Yeah. Um, and I think that's very much how oftentimes in relationships that people do like there's that subtext of i'm gonna i'm gonna approach it this way because i don't want you to suddenly like you know i don't want you to read into it that i'm gonna i'm gonna push all of uh you know we're gonna make this big move and all this sort of thing and so you know i think there's an element to uh to that also you know trying to get a read from somebody yeah i i absolutely i i can totally relate to that like this is a big that this starts a bigger conversation that she, you know, getting a, call it getting a read or maybe it was a test of some sort or whatever, like she just wanted to test his sympathy. But then it becomes uh, I'm going to pull the rug out from under you because like of the story that I painted in my head that um, turns out is untrue. Like all he wanted to do was be able to have a conversation about it. And that is what he demonstrates the entire time. Well, uh, I mean, you don't think so? You mean that you, you mean Chicago? Uh, yeah, Chicago. Like he keeps saying, let's just talk about it. And all we we're sitting here watching it saying, yes, let's just talk about it. Talk about the pros and cons. Like when he presents this argument about don't you feel like it's crazy when you forgot to pick up the twins and you felt real bad about that? And you were a half hour late. I feel like that all the time. And she was unable to even approach relating to that. That was so frustrating. And what it really, I think, demonstrated is that probably the arc of the last nine years of their relationship was this kind of crazy, like of of them not being able to talk to each other. Maybe that's just the relationship they had. Maybe it is. Yeah, well, maybe it is. And but to that end, does that instantly turn it into a dumb film? Because you can't relate to how the characters relate to each other. I, I, I think it was uh, to me, it was none of their dialogue was relatable. Like none of their dialogue was relatable in that last part. I understand the intention. And I understand that I'm an island. Like I read the reviews of this thing and there are so few that see the movie like we did watching it. There's so few. I get it. But that doesn't mean it's, it, it, you know, that I, I don't, I don't know how to watch that and, and have it hit my ear like something that, that makes sense in an emotional context. It just never did. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, um, I, I think that there are some really interesting things going on in the movie, and uh, I but but it, it turned into something that um, was um, less so for for me in terms of the overall narrative structure. And I am it, it really it is <laughs> it is what it is. And uh, but the the things that I like about the movie are uh, interestingly. Um, you know, some of the things we talked about in the, the opening, the walk and talks. Can we talk a little bit about the the structure of how they how like Clayter put this together? Sure. Um, well, did you did you happen to bring up Cinemetrics? I already closed my tab. Yep. Uh, Cinemetrics. Uh, well, OK, so first of all, average shot length. We already talked about before sunrise, average shot length, 10.8 seconds before sunset, 10.2 seconds. Any sense with this film? If the average shot length is longer or shorter, I would be surprised if it doesn't cross. I think it's longer. It's actually 8.3 seconds. Are you serious? 
Well, I think it's because in in the case of the previous two films, as you pointed out, we're largely focusing on just the two people throughout. So there allows a, a more ample opportunity to kind of have more uh, two shots that, I mean, you know, obviously there is a lot of back and forth as far as cutting over the shoulder and everything, but there are a lot more shots that are kind of longer as we kind of traverse with them. In this particular case, we have... Uh, the entire lunch scene with all of the different or dinner or whatever it was with all the different people at the table. And it's, it's constantly cutting back and forth between them. Right. And then once the fight starts, it is largely like very much back and forth cutting. Like we're, we're really jumping back and forth a lot. So I, so I, I can see why now the longest shot in uh, before sunrise was a long one. It was almost six minutes. And before sunset, it was a little shorter. The The longest one was, I think, um, closer to three minutes. Any sense as to what the longest shot was or how long it would have been for this one? I, it's probably three minutes. I, I found myself frustrated because there were two shots in particular that I thought they had the opportunity to take the crown. One was the drive and talk when they're in the car and the girls are asleep and they, they're driving, 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 and it feels like it's forever. And then they cut away to the ruins that they're not going to visit for just like two seconds and they break that shot and then they come back. I think there's a reverse shot and then back to the drive and talk in the front angle. Um, and so that was frustrating. And then their walk and talk on the way to the hotel, very, very long. They cut to a reverse shot and it makes me crazy because they had that. I felt like that was the one where they had the title in their hands and he cut away and broke it. And I don't know why. What what is it? The driving. The drive and talk. Yeah, the drive and talk. How long was it? Was it more than six minutes? Pete. <laughs> uh, I mean, is that what your guess is? Six minutes? No, I don't think it was six minutes. I, I would go like four or five. It is... 17 minutes. The longest shot is the second part of the driving shot. After, after the ruins. After the cut. And it's over eight minutes. Wow! If you did not cut... <laughs> In the ruins there, it is a 13-minute shot. See, I don't know. What do you think the value of that cut would, was? Uh, well, it's such a long conversation. I mean, 13 minutes. I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, you wanted to point out the ruins, and, and it, was a, it was a sense. I mean, I guess you could have panned over to it and come back to it or something. So it, it, you don't really get a good shot of the ruins to know what they're talking about. So I, I think that it probably is just a sense of space to say that that's what they're talking about now, those ruins over there, and trying to debate if they should stop there or not. I'm so on the fence, and I need to hear more about you, specifically from you. What is the value of cutting away to show us ruins we're never going to visit? I. I wanted the 13-minute shot. Like, I was in the car with them, and I was okay with it. I don't think I, I really cared so much that we had that cut. The other thing is, I was like, well, maybe there was a, a, there was a gaff in one of the lines or a technical flub or yeah. something, right. and they had to use the first part of one take and the second part of another, and they just didn't have time to go shoot another, you know, the, shoot that thing for 13 minutes again, you know I mean? Yeah, who knows? Or or maybe just to give the actors a pause, they broke it into the six minute and an eight minute shot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, who knows? It's they could, uh, you know, I don't know. We know that filmmakers obviously do much longer shots, and they could have very well done a thirteen minute shot. Um, so I, I I'm not exactly sure if there is a particular reason. And actually, you know, something that I'm I actually am curious about now because 
I would assume that they shot this digitally, but I don't know for sure. But obviously, if they were shooting film, you know, they're, they would have to find a cut in there because a reel of film is not going to run 13 minutes. I think they're just over 11 minutes. So if it was shot in film, that may have been the reason. Right, right. Stitching. I don't know if I can find it. It just shows me the aspect ratio. Let me see if I can find any other text, technical specs. It was shot in the area Alexa, so it was digital. So, yeah, it could have, they could have shot the whole thing yeah, um, as it was. But no, um, there you go. That's interesting. I, I, I found myself like really uh, like this was one of the long shots where I was kind of rooting for it to to grab the title in that sequence. And I'm glad it did. Although I feel like if you're going to grab the title in a movie like this, go for the 13. Uh, <laughs> is what it is. Well, and then you sh- the there was a shot toward the end that you were calling out, right? The two shot toward the end. Yeah, the, well, it was the it was the the sort of liminal space, right? It was after lunch and they were walking to the hotel across the island. Yeah. And that was another very long shot that was split. I don't know. Yeah, that one is if I'm looking at the right thing, um, there's a two shot that lasts two minutes and then it's a cut to uh, just a quick little six second shot and then it cuts back to the same shot for another two minutes. So that was probably a four, four minute, minute shot in there. Yeah. There is a shot toward the end of the film. I'm assuming it was at the table um, as they were sitting at that little table. And that one is almost three minutes. So, I mean, there there are still some other long shots in here, but but largely, if you look at this cinematrics compared to the others, I mean, it is so many short shots, like a lot, a lot much shorter. Well, I, I, I had not made that. Yeah, because they're so you're absolutely I mean, that's absolutely great observation that, that I, I, you know, I got so uh, hornswoggled by the very long driving shot and the walking shot that I forgot. Oh, right. They were cutting all over the place at dinner or at lunch. Right. They're all yeah. over the place. Yeah. So, OK. Uh, one of the other what, what did you think structurally about having all the characters? I don't think you've weighed in on your perspective of, of that piece of it. About the writing stuff, and let's talk about all the other book stories that I'm thinking about. And did that work for you? I, yeah, I mean, I liked that we did introduce this group that they have at the house, whatever it is. I mean, it seems to be this very wealthy patron of the arts who finds writers he's interested in and invites them out for these vacations with their families to basically, I mean, it is, it's very much a retreat. You know, he's out here writing for six weeks. They're all having these conversations and everything. And, you know, Patrick, this, this older gentleman was a really interesting character. I, I kind of enjoyed him. I thought the conversation that they had at the table about relationships and, you know, the different views on relationships and masculinity and femininity was very interesting. And, and I mean, coming from Patrick as a, as a person who has a wife, he's kind of has this relationship with her, but they've always viewed their relationship as we are two singles, not one couple. And here he is, his wife's off doing something else. And he has this friend, this partner uh, that is with him, it's an interesting like interpretation of like just the way that their relationship is. And then you have the young couple and they're like, Oh, we, we can't imagine ever sticking together. You know, like that whole idea of like, Oh God, we're, you know, that's such a, such a, a you know, a passe trope that we have to, you know, meet somebody and we're, you know, life partners for, you know, the, from the moment we meet. And so there's, there is an interesting exploration 
throughout that dinner scene. And, and I really enjoyed that. And, and, you know, and I enjoyed the chance to kind of have him, uh, Jesse kind of chatting with the other guys about their writing and everything. And so it, it allowed for some interesting directions in the conversation that I thought were, um, you know, kind of fun to have. I do too. And I, I like the other characters. I like that we have the span of, um, you know, age, very young couples. And as you mentioned, very old couples, couples so old and confident in their relationships that they're not even like present in the same space in, in our experience with them. Um, I, I liked them a lot. I like the other couple. I wasn't quite clear on what their role was. Was it Achilles and Adriani? Ariadne. Um, the bearded wonder. Ariadne. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, the, the, I, I thought they were interesting. Uh, like if they were just to be a Greek parallel to Jesse and Celine, uh, w- what their sort of function was, if they were just other residents at this house or son or daughter, I couldn't make sense of that. Well, I mean, we knew that Hank was the grandson of Patrick. Okay. Because he talked about how this was the first time that his grandpa didn't put him to work when he came down for the summer because he brought this girl with him. And so he was actually allowed to be at the grown-ups table as they were joking. I know, I, but Hank was Jesse and Celine, Jesse's son. Oh no, no, sorry, not Hank. Um, uh, what's the kid's name then? Is it? Um, um or was that Achilles? It might have been a, a Achilles. Yeah, it, or Stefano. Stephanos is either Achilles. No, Stephanos, or Stephanos is Stephanos is the bearded one. Okay, then it was Achilles. Yeah, yeah. So Achilles was the young boy who brought the girl for the first time. And that was, Ar- that was Ariadne. Interesting, very interesting Greek names as far yeah. as Achilles and Ariadne, the yeah. um, spider or uh, whatever. No, Ar- sorry, I take it back. I, I'm, I'm looking at their faces on, on IMDb, trying to figure out who is who. Ariane Labed was Anna. Yeah. Yeah. Anna and Achilles were together. Ariadne and Stephanos were together. And so Anna and Achilles, I mean, they're, I, I, I guess my sense of all of these different groups was they were providing perspective as couples. Cause I mean, it was a very sexual conversation that they was, it ranged through sexuality and masculinity, femininity, you know, all those different things, marriage. And Anna and Achilles definitely had that perspective from the youth of like, you know, we don't, you know, why do couples have to, you know, create this life partnership sort of thing, you know? And then Ariadne and Stephanos seemed to have the, uh, you know, the more adult perspective, uh, you know, and I, I guess we're looking at the different stages in life, just like looking over the course of this trilogy. You know, we have Ariadne and Stephanos who are more mature. They've been together for a while. And just like Jesse and Celine, they're, you know, they have their perspective on marriage and, and their their kind of view of, of their relationship. And then, of course, the older group, you have Patrick and I don't know the name of the woman that he was with. They also have this their own little sense of a relationship. And so my sense of it was crafting a group that allowed, I, like, I, I don't know if Stephanos or Ariadne were there also as writers. You know, I wasn't quite sure who was actually here as a writer. It kind of felt like it was just Jesse, but I wasn't really sure. Yeah. And so, but I think largely it was designed to just allow us to have these a variety of conversations about all of the perspectives from different ages, different types of relationships, and all of that. So here's the thing that I I feel like we settled, and now I'm going to open up again, which is about Patrick's relationship and what we should be learning from that. Who was Natalia? She was the older woman who felt like a a partner to Patrick, and I actually wonder if we're reading this wrong. If when Patrick says 
you'll notice she's not here with us. If he was speaking in the past tense, that he was talking about how his relationship was with his ex-wife and they're divorced and that Natalia is actually his current wife and she's the one who's there at the living with them because she felt very matronly to me. Oh, yeah, I I guess I viewed it as because uh, I mean, I don't know. It's it's all up to interpretation because we don't really get the answers. But the way that pa- Patrick described his marriage was that we were always two singles that came together. We had our own lives and that's the way we wanted it. Like she lived her, she lives her life. I live my life. Yeah. This is my life. This is what I'm doing. She's off doing her own thing. We're certainly together, but we also acknowledge that, you know, I'm going to bring Natalia sometimes with me to the Island and she and I are going to hang out and she's going to go do her own thing. And, and that was my sense of it, that Natalia was essentially the other woman at least at this particular point in time that he brought here um, and, you know, before he goes back to hang out with his wife somewhere else. Hmm. See, I think I'm the more we talk about, it, the more I'm thinking he's divorced and she's his new wife. What makes you think that? Because the way that he dis- because he never says we're married. He's he never says he never speaks anything about his current wife or about this other woman that he's talking about. We're separate in the present tense. I'd have to go back and listen to the specific words because I I don't remember exactly. I just remember him saying, you know, we have a different way of viewing our relationship. Yeah. Uh, What else? What else is on your mind? Well, so as far as locations, so, you know, we started in Vienna with the first film overnight, and then we moved to uh, Paris uh, over the course of an afternoon. And now we're in Greece and at the end of a vacation, the end of the last day of a vacation as we're kind of um, lingering along the, the villa and doing a little walk in, in some of the touring and stuff and uh, leading to the hotel and the end at the waterside. How do you feel as far as the way that the location is used in this particular film? Like, how does it work for you? Does Are you finding that... Um, I mean, I know with Paris in our last film, we felt like it was it was not the focus of the film. Um, their conversation was really the focus of the film and their reconnection. Um, and here we have a much different sense of things um, as far as the way it's treated. I mean, what did you think? Uh, I accept the overall use of this tour across Europe. Uh, as part of the universe, and I enjoy it. I like Greece, um, and this, you know, part of what I like, like, this is one of the few places that I've been, in fact, I've been here, and I've been to Paris, and so I feel like I kind of, it felt familiar to me, and so the, the, that's one of the reasons I've, I've never been to Vienna, but so I've got two out of three for the trilogy, and so it felt familiar and homey, like I was a part of, uh, like I could be a little bit more of a part of the conversation, because I, I really enjoyed the use of, of space. I also like that it wasn't just fashionable Greece. Like they really showcase the fact that it's just like there's a lot of high arid desert kind of islandry. Like it's not a, there. There isn't a lot of lush stuff going on in the Mediterranean. Um, I don't even know what the what you call the ecosystem, but it's just there's very dry, <laughs> hot, and the ruins are you know it's not it wasn't very glamorous, and yet it's still beautiful. Like when you look at his his villa. Um, it was just, just, just beautiful. So I, I really enjoy it. I like it. And, and I know that that's one of the criticisms of the movie that, you know, that it doesn't actually use the sense of space, uh, as well as the other two movies. Certainly not as well as the first one used Vienna, which I thought really became, um, an interesting part of the way the movie 
ended. It, it doesn't live up to that, but I, I still really enjoy my time with them in Greece. I guess I haven't read uh, criticisms of it. Is it because it's not like in a classical Greece like city, like Athens, where where they would be walking around and you'd be seeing kind of more prominent things, as opposed to here, where yeah, it is this uh, kind of this peninsula, uh, kind of at the end of the island, where it is more of kind of a, I guess an isolated vacation spot. Is that uh, is that the criticism? Maybe I think one of the one of the crit- critiques of the film is that you know if you're going to be in Greece uh, and and you're going to talk about going to places like the ruins, you should go to the ruins, right? You're going to talk about it, talk, spend so much talk time talking about it, and you're actually physically there then go there. Let, like, let's have a scene there. Use the space that you are in, um, you know, with with greater intentionality. And I, I think that's, um, I, I didn't share that. I don't share that uh, experience. I didn't mind that they didn't go to the ruins that the, all we got of the cutaway was to, I, I still felt like we were in Greece. And that was satisfying for me. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a strange perspective to take because they certainly didn't do that in paris and i mean were people complaining that hey we're not seeing the the eiffel tower and we're not you know we're not walking past the louvre like yeah it's a it's a weird perspective it's like it still felt like we were in paris like it it felt like we we were of a place Uh, and and this certainly felt like that kind of coastal greece um that you see so often in vacation sorts of films where people go to this place to you know really kind of hang out and uh yeah just kind of um enjoy the the waters and the climate and everything and and so i yeah it's it's interesting to me that it would be something that people would view as a problem you know i i, I guess i never felt like the intentions of the trilogy were to really kind of give you a tour of these places while jesse and celine were talking past them well and i wonder if andy if that is um I, I agree with you. One, I agree with you. But I wonder if you could get that misconception after Vienna, where they are literally tourists in this town, right? And they're going through these places and having never been to Vienna, I can't say, but but they make such a big deal about all the little alleyways and all the little stuff that you kind of move into the next movie and you feel like, oh, maybe this is going to be a similar thing. I, I'm sort of done saying that the space is a character in the film, but in the first movie, it, it felt much more intentional about the way they relate to the spaces in which they are existing. And in the second and third movies, it feels less so. It just feels like, it, well, it, you know what you know what it is that's interesting? Greece, even though they don't live in Greece, they live in Paris. Greece feels more lived in to me. Like they actually made good on the fact that they've been there for six weeks and and feel like they're residents. I guess this I, I struggle with that perspective if people still have it by the time we get to this third film, because it's like they didn't do that in the second film. And even in Vienna, like it's a strange thing to say, because like, yeah, you're seeing like the waterfront and you're seeing this boat on it and things like that. But you're not like, you know, walking through. I, I don't know. My brain instantly goes to the sewers of, of Vienna because of things like the third man, which, uh, you know, doesn't yeah, right, really. Right. It, that's not where tourists go when they're going to but it's like you're not seeing like as many iconic like uh, you know what is iconic in vienna and maybe i just don't know but it, i mean yeah it's a nice tour through the city but i never felt like oh this is a movie where we're wa- looking at all of the iconic you know touristy things that you have to see if you go to vienna yeah right Right. And yet in Paris, we get one of the most touristy experiences that you can have as a tourist to Paris, which is the Bateau Mouche on the Seine. Well, it is. But at the same time, like, 
I don't know. And I feel like riverboat rides through cities is just such a common thing that I don't I don't think of that as a particularly Parisian thing. Yeah, I, I think that what's iconic in Paris is that the, the boats themselves are are kind of a unique style. Like you see one of those boats, at least I see one of those boats and I think of Paris. I don't think of, you know, Galveston. You know, <laughs> is there is that a, a hotbed for yeah, it's a real hot bed, river, river boat rides? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's it's an interesting. The the boats certainly are. Um, they have a look. The bridge, like the un, uh, and do you call it an underpass where you know when you're when a river goes under it and the boat you know goes under a bridge? Is it still an underpass? I don't know. You're passing under the bridge. Yeah. But like right. they have that they have that iconic kind of arc also the way that the the bridges look. So I mean there yeah. certainly is a look. I do agree with that. I just all I'm saying is I don't I don't think that there's any sense. I think it's just nice that they were in Europe and in Greece and it's a nice place to put it yeah. because yeah. these people and and what here's another thing there's these people I think Jesse too, part of what his character represents across this arc is an American who is um, living as a European. And he's been there now for some number of years. And what is that conflict inside him? And that's, you know, part of what Celine, I think, is coming out of with her, like, sort of antagonism for moving back to Chicago is, look, our life is here. You agreed to be here. And it almost feels like she's been sort of simmering on painting this picture in her head of him wanting to go back for some time. And it's just sort of boiling over. And what we get in use of space in Greece is is just like, look how familiar he gets to be as someone who's lived in Europe for so long, driving Greek roads, being in this space, eating Greek food, toasting, you know, other people who aren't Greek, uh, but also live in Greece. <laughs> that kind of a thing. So uh, I do have that that part real quick which I do think is interesting, and I'm curious if you have a different take on it now after I uh, do a dramatic reading of the movie. Achilles first says to Patrick, so what about Grandma? Was she a soulmate? Well, it sounds appealing, says Patrick, but actually your grandmother was more rational than that. She took care of herself and asked me to do the same with plenty of room to meet in the middle. Anna says, yeah, that sounds ideal. Stephanos, yeah, it is, actually, it is. Patrick, but it must be obvious that my wife is not here today. We were never one person, always two. We preferred it that way. It's interesting because as it started, it started sounding like she had passed away. But then as it kind of comes to that end, it does make it feel like they've separated or they've you know, they've, they've divorced or they've ended their relationship. Like it does start feeling like it may have ended then. Yeah. I think whatever the case is, it answers to me, it answers my question that the wife is not here for a reason. And that role has been replaced by Natalia who is there today. And when Patrick says at the end of the day, it's not the love of, of one other person that matters. It's the love of life that. He is still flourishing and is has grieved and has moved on and is flourishing in a new relationship. That's that's how that's my take on it. I don't know if she's dead or divorced. Yeah, there's an interesting start to it also, because when they're all sitting down, he he kind of introduces her. This is Natalia. I hope you don't mind if she joins us or something like that. It, it like it was an interesting <laughs> 
way to kind of set things up. Like, I mean, it, it seemed like she had not been here over the course of the six weeks like the other couples had. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, but again, that allows for another example of a relationship as, you know, he is doing his own explorations, trying to figure out, you know, what's next for him. Maybe now that he's no longer with grandma for whatever reason. Yeah. Okay. Well, seriously, solved a very important very Everybody was asking about Patrick. Everybody was asking about Patrick's relationship in this movie. All right. So what else is on your mind? I guess that's about it. Uh, Although I will say I did think it was interesting and I didn't pay attention to this with the previous two films to see how expansive the casts were or sorry that the crews were from the particular locations like was it largely a viennese crew and then a parisian crew because certainly in the case of this film it is very much a greek crew and so it was very interesting to me to see wow he really wanted to work or or i don't know i don't you know there's all sorts of reasons it could have been tax incentives who knows but i mean it was a very Greek crew, like his cinematographer, Christos Vodoris, and, you know, he had a co-producer of Christos Constantinopoulos. Uh, so I think that, uh, I don't know, I, I, it piqued my curiosity. And, and honestly, when I see that sometimes, I wonder, is it a tax incentive thing? Did they approach him and say, we'd love, you know, for you to set your film here and we'll help you, you know, get it done? And so he worked the, so, well, he, I should say he Hawk and Delpy reworked it to take places in Greece. Who knows? But I do. I'm always curious when I see something like that. Like, what are the? Yeah. What's the reason that um, it took that turn? I mean, I'm certainly all for it. I, it just it always um, you know piques my curiosity. Well, yeah. I mean, I, what a lucky break if they ended up getting lots of breaks and lots of great crew to work on a movie there. Awesome because it serves the story well enough. Like, I I think it's awesome and it gives us you know going from Vienna to Paris like doesn't. Vienna and Paris are more similar than Greece to either one of those two before it. Like it gives us such a different texture to their experience walking across this landscape that I think is really nice. Well, but and I, but also I think there's something where it goes from city to city to coastal town. Yeah, you know, right. and that I mean because they, I mean instead of Paris, it could have been a a coastal town in Paris. You know, and so they could have done that. But I I also think it's interesting that it went from like metropolis to metropolis to yeah, you know, small village, uh, small village. Yeah. yeah, and I think that also. Um, shakes things up a little bit i could have gone to the alps man it could have been force majeure all over again (laughs) that's that would have been an interesting one but certainly yeah you know one interesting thing that i think this film addresses in a way that the first two don't that i have been thinking about over the course of these three movies that i feel like celine has (laughs) celine puts in the course of their fight she puts her foot down he is stefanos asked jesse i don't remember how he puts it um but he's talking about how it, it, it must be weird for celine the way you write about her in your books. And Jesse says, why? I think she's gotten used to it because he is, he lives on a fairly obvious level, uh, I, I guess. And then Stephanos goes into, well, it's so sexy. Like you black out the windows and you guys just had sex for a week. Like, isn't that weird? And Jesse's like shrugs his shoulders. Like, yeah, we did that. And that's right. And then later, she actually unleashes and she's unleashing on him. And she says, you can never write about me in one of your books again, ever, again, ever. And uh, I, I felt like that that was earned like uh, that was earned because he got away with a lot using her and their experience together without 
um, you know, without talking about it. And they have that that kind of awkward situation where the the hotel operator asks them to uh, ask him to and her, Jesse and Celine both, to autograph the books. And it's weird. It's weird. So I think that's one thing in the movie that this movie sort of puts a a, a period at the end of the sentence, which is how does Celine really feel about being used in the book? They dance around it in the last movie. In this movie, it's just weird. It's it's weird. Well, it's an interesting element. And certainly, I think the challenge that probably anybody who has a writer in their life, when that writer pulls elements of the people they know into the characters. And I mean, I, I think, you know, um, somebody that, you know, we don't always enjoy talking about, but Woody Allen, I think he's certainly explored that in um, in stuff like what's what's the one he did? It was late '90s, and uh, that was that was a, a whole element of it where everybody was getting upset at him because, like in his book, it was like so obvious who he had used to write some of these particular characters, and I think that you know that's a challenge because obviously as a writer you want to be able to pull from whatever sources you can to kind of craft these characters and kind of come up with these things but you know you also ideally you want to change it enough so it's not going to feel like oh i'm just putting ann marge in my book and wow did i make her an awful person um and now everybody thinks ann marge is an awful person and there's an interesting perspective with writers because jesse like his retort to her is like i will write you in my book if i want to because that's what i do and you know it's i i think there's there's a balance, and I think it's it's it can be a challenge for writers to. I mean, in, even look at Richard Linkletter as the person who. I mean, we talked about this in the first um, film that that first one there was an autobiographical element to it because he had had a moment like this in I think Philadelphia, and uh, where he had walked around o- over the course of an evening with somebody and had like these in depth conversations and. Like, how does that particular person feel, you know? And and I think there's this, there is this element to these people feeling used. And I think for, for Celine, I kind of read it like, as long as people aren't talking about it or assuming that that specifically is me, then I really don't care. But it's in those moments when Stephanos is bringing these things up and she's like, no, he just, he, you know, exaggerates and the whole thing is just so different. And then especially when that, that, um, you know, woman at the, yeah, the hotel desk wanted her to, to write her name in it and autograph it for her, for her husband where, I mean, how uncomfortable is that? Because it's like in no way was she involved in the creative version of their life. She was totally. the inspiration for the, for the story, but wasn't involved. And so, yeah, I, I can, I can totally like, it was, it was horrifying that, you know, she was asked to do that. And also for Jesse to, you know, I mean, as as somebody in that situation, you're just trying to be kind and everything. And he just kind of says, yeah, she ha- should be happy to. And that was so dismissive of Celine. Um, but also, like, from his perspective, it's just like, I'm just writing my name in a book. You know, wh- why do you care? It doesn't really matter. It's just to make them happy. And so it's it's such an interesting perspective from the two of them. Well, and it, it, we need them to exist at at extremes in this particular argument because it makes that no it makes the conflict more satisfying right that and and that he exists at such a simple level and doesn't actually see the the problem that she might be having and it is you know i think uh important to their later conflict yeah yeah 
So it's it's very intriguing. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Emmanuel Jacob, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imbb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. How did it do at award season? This one did really well for itself. And and part of it, I wonder if, I mean, obviously, with the success of these films and the the excitement of suddenly this it being this interesting exploration of this relationship over 18 years across three films with this repeat every nine years sort of thing that they had kind of come up with. I think a lot of people started noticing it and and paying attention to what Linkletter was doing and how he was crafting these stories. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, that made them very excited for it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't I can't remember if as this was coming out, if information had leaked or, or had been announced about what his next project was yet with boyhood as far as like the 12 year project. Like, I don't know, but I, I just get a sense that there was a lot of buzz with uh link letter and because it's the end of a trilogy, just like things like return of the King, like do people shove more awards at it because of that? Yeah. Uh, you know, that perspective. And so this film very heavily uh, was um, a big, talk in the awards uh, circuit when it came out it had 20 wins with 63 other nominations so um definitely much more than either of the previous two so wow at the oscars it was nominated uh, for best adapted screenplay just like its predecessor lost however to 12 years a slave uh, something that i always think is fun to look at the aarp best movies for grown-ups awards I absolutely love that they do that. It won for Best Screenwriter, and it was nominated for Best Grown-Up Love Story, but lost to the film Enough Said, which I still haven't seen, but I've heard great things about it. Have you seen that one, the Nicole Hall of Center movie? No. I'm not old enough, I don't think. <laughs> Sadly, you are, Pete. Sadly, you are. <laughs> we, we both are. And then I thought this would be an interesting one to point out. The Austin Film Critics Association, just because Linkletter is so tied in with Austin, I was curious to see how he did there. He did win the Austin Film Award that year for his film. For best film, however, he came in eighth place. Uh, so definitely um, the film came in a little farther back. Her, actually, is the film that took first place. I love her. Yes, I do too. <laughs> okay. How to do at the box office? Well, for the final film of the trilogy, Linkletter had a budget of $3 million, which is $3.3 million in today's dollars. The movie opened May 24th, 2013, with another nine-year gap, opposite Fast and the Furious 6, or sorry, Fast and Furious 6, and Epic. 
It opened in 18th place and, like the last film, had that word-of-mouth buzz that kept it in theaters for 24 weeks. It went on to earn $8.1 million domestically and $15.1 million internationally for a total gross of almost $25.7 million in today's dollars, becoming the highest-grossing film in the trilogy. And that lands the film with an adjusted profit per finishment of $204,000. As far as profit is concerned, not as good as the second film, but it still had a better return on investment. Okay. Well, I, uh, I, I'm i glad we watched all of these. I do not regret seeing them all. I'm glad we talked about them, even though they weren't really to my taste. Um, I am curious. It's going to make for a fun retake episode. I know. It's going to make for a fun retake. Can you tease it a little bit by telling me off the right off the dome which of your favorite of the three is? What I will first say is, is for those who aren't members of our show, the retake episode we release after a series is complete. And it's an episode where we kind of look at the whole thing kind of in retrospect, kind of comparing the films, talking about it in more depth, and also ranking them on our flick chart. So that will be uh, the retake episode, which will come out uh, shortly after this episode is released for members. And you can learn more about how to get those along with all the other things we do for members we have monthly member bonus episodes we have flick chart re-ranking members get everything early members don't have to listen to all the ads in the episodes so all of that great stuff you can learn at thenextreel.com slash membership or truestory.fm slash tnr hyphen membership learn more about it there and uh, we'd love to have you and as far as this film goes um with the three i it's i would say my favorite is still Before Sunset. That was the second one. The second film. Yeah, mine too. Mine too, for sure. It's a real, this is a real camel series. I know, because you really hated the other two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big hump in the middle. This one actually makes me like that second one more, Andy. That's a huge win. That's a huge win. It is. There are probably more stars to go around as a result of watching this movie. Uh, that's true. That's true. The stars this one doesn't get go to the next one. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's uh, tell everybody what we're doing next, shall we? Oh, yeah. And then uh, we can come back and do our ratings. So what are we doing next? For our next uh, series, we are looking at Gareth Evans' pair of films, The Raid and The Raid 2, Berendahl. So let's listen to the trailer for The Raid, and then we'll come back for our ratings. <laughs> Dan jangan lupa bersenang-senang.
Letterboxd, Andy, you know, Letterboxd. I don't know if you've heard of it. It is our favorite social network for movie lovers. And, you know, it's got ads and stuff. And so to support the site, if you like us, you love Letterboxd, you should have head over to the nextreel.com slash Letterboxd and subscribe there. You pay a few bucks and you will support the show. You'll get rid of ads. You'll support the team uh, of fantastic Kiwis making Letterboxd. And uh, also, big gift. You get 20% off works for new subscribers and renewals as well. Okay, Andy, where are you going to put this? Five stars, six stars, big glowing beating heart. How many stars? Well, how many stars are you cutting off of it? Because I'm just going to add those to the top. Of <laughs> so that will no, make you know, it probably I'll tell a you, ten star. Well, <laughs> I I really no. reviled the end of the film, but I did not revile the beginning. Like I really enjoyed that lunch scene, and I liked the car. And even though the the things that I pointed out that set up bonkers conflict in the second half that I didn't relate to, that doesn't mean it's like a completely unredeemable movie. I am going to stick with two stars, which is the same thing that I gave it gave the first movie um and that makes a perfect two for two for the trilogy two for two no heart huh uh you know what i'm gonna give this one uh, a heart for patrick a heart for patrick and his loss (laughs) (laughs) i don't even know how to take that um i did four and a half and five and i think i'm gonna go back to four and a half with this one uh, so that's where I'm going to sit. So okay. just like you, I also have a hump uh, with mine, but it's yeah. a little, it's a, a little it's bit a of kind a, of a flatter a, hump, a taller, taller, flatter hump. <laughs> so that puts the film at a three and a quarter over on Letterboxd. So we'll just uh, round that up to three and a half with a heart for this film. And uh, as Pete said, don't forget, visit the slash Letterboxd. You can get your patron or pro membership and it works for renewals as well. So what did you think about Before Midnight? We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. You know, why don't you go first? I've got a five star by Rodolfo, who has this to say. Me. We need more original projects. No more sequels and reboots. Also me, banging on Richard Linklater's door, yelling at Julie Delpy's balcony, uh, crying on Ethan Hawke's porch. <laughs> Please make a fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one comes. I, I had not seen this one. It's a three star from Izzy. Izzy? Uh, And this one comes uh, a note courtesy of uh, Brian in the chat room. Uh, And it reads three stars. Friend, can you pass the salad? Celine. Oh, you know what men always do when you talk about salad? They get horny. I'll tell you the difference between men and women. Women are lettuce and men are celery. Listen, I watched this documentary on a serial killer who asked for a salad for his last meal. Jesse would have ordered Burger King. I have an American husband. God, did you read his book? It's so embarrassing. Listen, if you read that, you know everything, except we did not do it in the park. Complete bulls. Listen, I feel so old now. Jesse, do I look old? Are, how old are we now? I feel like I always wanted to be older, and now I feel I'm, I feel too old. Jesse, if you could change one thing about me, what would it be? Don't answer that, Jesse. I don't know if I'm alive. Friend, the salad. 
<laughs> There's a lot going on there. I probably should have done more voices and accents, but uh, that's pretty much my read on the movie. Nailed it. Nailed it in one. I don't know if I'm alive. <laughs> Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.